Welcome everybody, I think we're uh, ready to start. Um, before we start, can I remind everybody if they can uh, mute or switch off the mobile phones, we would appreciate uh, that. Um, a warm, warm welcome to this uh, event, the penultimate event in our series on the Genuine uh, Economic and Monetary Union. Uh, the topic uh, uh, of today is insurance and adjustment in the diverse monetary union. Uh, what uh, Eurozone can learn uh, from the UK, but we're looking in particular at the uh, subnational, or at least to some extent, the subnational dimension of adjustment, resilience, and how uh, economies, not only national economies, but at, at smaller scales, adjust uh, to uh, uh, or respond to common monetary uh, or macroeconomic uh, policy uh, at large. Now, to, to speak on this uh, event, I'm very, very happy to have a, a very distinguished uh, uh, panel with us. Um, I will start the introductions in alphabetical order, and my notes are not in alphabetical order, so I have to navigate to that. Uh, so uh, our first speaker will be uh, Professor Julia uh, Darby, uh, on my very right. She's uh, a professor of economics at the University of Strathclyde. Uh, at the business school there. She has uh, uh, studied uh, and previously worked in a number of uh, universities in the UK, including at National College, College uh, in Oxford, at Glasgow University, at Stirling University, and at the University of, of York. Um, she has worked also at the National Institute for Economic and Social Research and has done uh, a lot of work project-based or, or uh, otherwise uh, policy reports for a number of issues of policy at the uh, of macroeconomic and also labour uh, market policy in, in the in the UK, as he has published widely, of course, in many economics and uh, policy journals, including the Economic Journal, Labour Economics, European Journal of Political Economy, Oxford Economic Papers, and others. I will not bore you with uh, more of that. Uh, on my very left, uh, we have uh, Professor Danuta Hubner, uh, who is a member of the European uh, Parliament for the European People's uh, uh, Party. She has a long uh, history uh, and involvement both from academic perspective and from policy on issues of regional policy but also of European policy making. Uh, in general, uh, she is chairing currently the uh, Regional Development Committee and also is a member of the Committee for Economic and Monetary Affairs and of the Special Committee on the Financial, Economic and Social Crisis. So very much uh, a very well uh, positioned to talk about the things that we're uh, talking about uh, today. Before this all, uh, a few years back, she was Commissioner of Regional Policy, uh, the first uh, Polish uh, Commissioner of the European Union, uh, where she had produced a, a long work on, on regional policy in, in the European Union. She's also Professor of uh, Economics at the Warsaw School of Economics, where she uh, got her PhD the degree also uh, um, in, in Poland. Um, moving on alphabetically uh, to, to my immediate left, uh, prof, uh, Dr. Alberto Montagnoli, uh, he's a reader in economics at the University of Sheffield at the Department of Economics and uh, he uh, studied previously in the UK, he has his MSc and PhD at Brunel University and the first degree from the University of, of, of Padova. Um, uh, Alberto is uh, specializing uh, on finance and banking, but he has done, uh, I think, quite some important work on, on the issue of uh, monetary policy transmission to the regional level, how regions respond to, but also uh, how they're affected, but also they affect monetary policy at the so subnational regions uh, policy at the national level. And I think he can. Uh, 
bringing some insights from that work also in his uh, uh, presentation. Last but not least, uh, my former professor, uh, professor of <laughs> economic geography at, uh, here at the London School of Economics, uh, Professor Andres rodriguez Posse, a very, very distinguished uh, economic geographer uh, with a lot of uh, distinguished academic work and also policy work for a number of international organizations. It's difficult to locate him uh, in London often, but we managed to have him uh, with us today. Besides his role on academia and policy, he's also uh, significant uh, professional involvement. He's uh, president-elect uh, at the Reg uh, Regional Science Association International, the main regional science uh, academic organi professional organization uh, uh, globally, and he has served also as vice president in the past and secretary of the European Regional Science uh, Association. He's published widely in many, many uh, uh, academic journals and books, uh, and he's going to talk to us uh, today more from the perspective of uh, uh, the drivers of regional growth and what determines or what contributes to economic resilience, economic development uh, beyond. So if you want the, how you respond to the problems uh, arising from a common monetary policy and issues uh, uh, like that. Okay, I think uh, this has been quite a long introduction, but I hope uh, uh, slightly informative. Uh, I will pass the floor now to Professor uh, Dalby, who's going to give the first presentation. Okay, thank you. It's very nice to be invited to uh, London to talk on this. Uh, nice to get away from the independence debate up there right now and to start talking about what lessons there might be from the UK for the Euro area, especially when the, chance, the Governor of the Bank of England is up in Edinburgh and has spent the day uh, looking at it the other way around. But if you haven't seen the news yet, it's even playing on the news in London. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, let me get to the point. So, regional recovery in a diverse union. Um, I'm doing a bit of scene setting here, so I apologise if this is, if you know all this, um, let's just look at it anyway. Just so you know, the euro area is showing something of a muted pickup in GDP at the moment. These are the latest data that are very available from these from European economic, economy. Sorry, uh, I'm trying to use the most recent data throughout. Sometimes that's still looking back some way in the past, as you'll see in a bit. But the euro area is showing this muted pickup in GDP, having returned to a positive growth towards the end of 2013, quarter three. The IMF is calling this a fledgling recovery. There's lots of good words out there, but fledgling. Still fragile with a number of downside risks, okay? So if you look at unemployment, if you look at youth unemployment particularly, and various other indicators, there's still lots of slack within Europe and then various, various countries within Europe and within the UK too. There's also inflation below the European Central Bank's medium-term objective right now, and all this slack is renewing fears of further disinflation and possible deflation. So we're not back up to anything like previous trend. Current thinking is the trend will, when we get there will be somewhat different. Not quite back to even just before the downturn. But if you look across the countries, there's much more diverse experience. So in this chart, you've got everything indexed in 2008. So before the big drop, and until you cross this dotted line, the countries have not actually got back to the level of real GDP that they had before the drop. So in the National Institute of Economic and Social Research's terminology, so the place where I have my first job, so I like their terminology, 
this is still in depression. You're still pushed down below that dotted line. So recession over, depression continuing. You can see the diverse experience a bit more in uh, this table. <coughs> and the columns in this table, or particular top bit you can't quite see, this bit's telling you how big the drop from peak to trough is using the annual data from OECD Economic Outlook for November 2013. So the latest OECD publication on this. Annual data. Most countries you have quarterly data too, but this is the size of the drop. Then you've got the number of years that GDP, real GDP has been declining in the period between 2007 and 2013. Then this is when they surpass their pre-crisis peak. And where there's nothing, it's because at the end of the forecast period, in the latest economic outlook, they have not surpassed it yet. So then the last column, you're missing the very top line, is showing you the volume of GDP relative to the pre-crisis peak. And the red numbers are saying this is still below, and in some cases, very considerably below. Okay. So, uh, sorry, as an aside, think about this kind of story about where you are relative to when the drop occurred when listening to the stories about how wonderful the latest growth figures are in the UK. It is true that positive growth is, is, is a positive thing, a good thing, it's just we still have some way to go. Now, you can see the countries at the top there, Greece, Italy, Portugal and Spain, have a long way to go and they've basically not really moved from, in fact, they've been continuing to decline in some cases. So, those are also the countries that put in the most austerity effort. And this approach to looking at the data is borrowed from these guys, should acknowledge. I've updated it by one year compared to what they did. But the definition of austerity I've used is the same as theirs. So the percentage change in structurally adjusted primary government budget balances between 2009 and 13. Okay, so between 2009 and 2013 when the austerity effort was kicking in. So the total effort they put in over that period, and then you've got the change in the debt-to-GDP ratio over the same period. Okay? So lots of effort going in on the countries up here, but also those are the ones with the highest growth in their debt-to-GDP ratios over the period. Okay. So these, these countries are having this difficulty because, of course, the austerity effort initially pushes down GDP. And GDP is, of course, the thing on the bottom of the debt ratio. So if you look at where the debt ratios are now, and compare again 2008 with 2013, there's huge divergence. In some cases, the debt was well below the threshold that we're always supposed to look at within the European area of 60% beforehand, and then bounced up in some, it had been way above beforehand. But there's diversity there, and that's important. And the relevance of this 60% is something that you have to kind of question these days, certainly. And many people questioned it in the first place. Okay. So, whoops, sorry, going on a little bit too soon now. So, is the euro area in a different position here to the UK? In various ways, yes. Certainly to the high debt countries within the euro area. First of all, going back to the austerity picture, you can see the austerity effort put in in those countries is actually considerably greater than that in the UK. Okay? So, 
Why is that? Well, some of these countries were forced into their austerity. The highest debt ones were forced into their austerity by the inability to sell government bonds at reasonable interest rates. Forced austerity, bigger, harder. So, another reason that the euro area is different from the UK is that although there's very little scope for conventional monetary stimulus from lower interest rates in all the countries, because they're essentially constrained by the zero lower bound, the euro area is compounding this with having below target inflation everywhere. And falling consumer prices still in some of the worst hit countries. And then also financial fragmentation showing up in quite large differentials in interest rates on lending, um, connected to how risky the banks are seen, and different access for small and medium-sized enterprises across the countries, despite a single monetary policy. So another difference with the UK is that in the UK, quantitative easing has definitely helped by keeping bond yields low, both for corporate bond issuers and for the government. And most recently, we've got lots of communication around forward guidance, which is strengthening the message that monetary policy is going to stay loose in every possible way for some time. In contrast, the Eurozone uh, story on unconventional measures has been somewhat less coherent, at least the way it's, pre pre at least the way it's presented here. Uh, and there have been various episodes of considerable policy uncertainty. So, until the point at which the European Central Bank said that they would do whatever it takes via outright monetary transactions, you have the sovereign bond spreads playing, playing a role of crisis barometer, reacting very strongly to debt sustainability fears in a way that's then self-fulfilling and with dramatic con consequences for euro area periphery countries. So, my next question to bring us back to the report we're supposed to be discussing here are the ongoing reforms that are outlined in this four presidents report towards the genuine economic and monetary union actually addressing the right issues? So in stage one, the six packs aimed at addressing some of the weaknesses in design, surveillance and enforcement of fiscal rules. So the ones that were originally expressed in the Maastricht Treaty and then the Stability and Growth Pact. Uh, with some amendments. And then there's the two pack which is setting out more predictable ways of dealing with countries that are in severe fiscal difficulties. So even prior to the crisis, fiscal monitoring wasn't exactly an unqualified success. It focused a lot on whether the plans submitted met the deficit rule, particularly the deficit rule, focusing little on debt, debt to GDP ratios, possibly because there was this misguided belief that uh, financial markets would discipline sovereigns, sovereign debt in normal times, and there was that no bailout clause. But one of the factors that looks to have contributed to inadequate budgetary control was a widespread optimism bias in the projections, in the forecasts in these submissions. And that's particularly clear in the two and three year ahead forecasts. The one year ahead by the time it's being produced is pretty much on the way there anyway. But two and three years ahead in the planning horizons, generally over-optimistic, both in terms of promising more than was ultimately achieved in budgetary adjustments, but also in growth forecasts. 
So countries effectively on paper looked like they were going to be okay and meet within <coughs> the deficit rule, but were effectively avoiding that rule and evolving government debt took up the slack. Once you got beyond the date, then it was essentially too late. So there are various people that have been investigating this, and Frankel and Schrager have published the most recent paper on this, and they've argued that there's clear potential for independent fiscal authorities to come in and curb this tendency towards biased projections, to improve ex post surveillance, um, and to lead to more efficient early warnings. Certainly in the UK, there's evidence that the Office of Budget Responsibility has been somewhat useful, and in the UK, the bias in these projections and the bias in the growth forecast has been much less, and the analysis that they've done has shown that. Okay. So, once immediate problems in the euro area contained, these insights should really help fiscal governance going forward, and elements of the proposed reforms in the four presidents' report should help. But the restatement of the 60% debt rule is not looking to be terribly helpful in that regard. Um, Restoring debt sustainability is certainly important, and undeniably there's a need for fiscal space to deal with the next set of challenges, including fiscal consequences of ageing populations. But where we are now, stabilising debt-to-GDP ratios looks to be a more sensible option as a primary objective, and if that was applied to all, then some of the countries that have already stabilised debt-to-GDP ratios would be able to inject some stimulus, which has the possibility of, whilst maintaining their debt-to-GDP ratios constant, has the possibility of then pushing spillover effects into a more widespread recovery. But this insufficient debt control is only one, of the prob- one part of the problem. There are other flaws that have been exposed now in, in the euro area. The lack of financial dimension to macro stability is a flaw that was common to the UK and the US and various other places as well. The lack of clear crisis resolution mechanisms has been played out with lots of attempts at sorting things out once and for all and then more, the policy uncertainty. There's been slow progress with structural reforms and it still looks like the euro area is not really an optimal currency area and may not develop into one. So, Less resilient countries still look to have less flexibility and, less, and to be less able to deal with negative shocks and growing divergence in a downward direction from the core. Some of the planned reforms should again help. Steps towards banking union should break the vicious circle between banks and sovereigns, which will address this to some degree, but an improved fun- financial market functioning game. But this requires euro area wide agreements and clarification on resolution mechanisms and so on, which is going to take time to achieve. Reaching the ultimate, the final objective of the, the Four Presidents' report on the creation of a central level shock absorption fund that would help address asymmetric shocks looks likely to be a lot harder. It's feasibility to have transfers going in different directions when one economy is experiencing a good time towards one that's experiencing a bad time and not have them going in the same directions all the time looks to be pretty difficult, again, when you're aiming for 60% debt to GDP ratios. So some elements of debt forgiveness might still be necessary. But I want to finish up by looking at one more thing, and that's the regional disparities within countries. And this gives you 
Sorry? Half, Half a minute. minute. Yeah. Okay, so this gives you a very quick picture. The key thing here is that within countries, there's big dispersion. Green dot capital generally, sorry, green dot at the top capital, most generally at the top, uh, not quite here and in Germany. Worst performing region down here, average for the country here. Big picture to get from that, biggest dispersion, London, selected countries, but even with all the countries in the, in the original table, London stands out. This is Wales down here, in case you're interested. Um, so, here you're looking at UK data for nominal GDPA, so nominal GDP if you like. That's the way it's produced. They don't impose a particular deflator for each region. They don't publish a deflator for each region, but you can get the relativities here. Big story here, UK average. The southeast and London are the only ones above the UK average, and London is whoa, way out there. Not only that, but London has gained share, gained share in UK GVA to, by 22.8% over the period 2007 to 14. Southeast has gained a little bit. All the other, all the other regions are now having a smaller share of total UK GVA. So. By half a minute, can I do my last chart? <laughs> <laughs> this is the next thing we have to deal with. Quick picture, it's house prices. They've gone from blue, which means don't worry too much, to red to ooh, hotspots, okay? Ooh, hotspots, that's what you need to remember. So, can macro policy address this without raising interest rates and hurting everybody? According to the Bank of England, the Bank of England line is very clear. Absolutely, they can address this. The way that this is going to happen is that they're monitoring it, and you know that from their reports, from their briefings, from the Financial Stability Report, as well as the Monetary Policy <coughs> Committee's inflation reports. And not only are they monitoring it, but there is now a policy toolbox to deal with it, and it's the Macroprudential Policy Toolbox. And it's held by the Financial Stability Committee. So the point there is that they focus on that, Will the Monetary Policy Committee get on and keep us to the conditions for sustained recovery and price stability? And my final thing, is this going to work? Just you wait and see, we're going to find out very soon. And that's me. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Well, I, I hope we're going to find out more and more as we go along with the, with the presentations as well. So our next speaker is Alberto Montagnoli. And I think we, we are going to explore more of this uh, dimension of uh, the interaction between regional economies and monetary policy. Yeah. Yes, uh, thank you for having me here. Um, and I pick up exactly from the last two slides on this regional variation, because uh, the big talk at the, at the moment, if you read all the papers, is that we need to have some kind of uh, fiscal integration so that we can proceed on a better on a better path, on a better, uh, more sustainable European um, integration. Uh, what I'm going to argue instead is that uh, uh, even when we have this fiscal integration, when we have these fiscal unions, and Julia showed it uh, with, her, uh, with her slides, um, we have persistent and widening regional variations. This is the case of the UK, it's the case of uh, Italy, for example, where I've done extensive work, uh, because uh, what we have, we have that the monetary policy has different impacts in different regions. And uh, the fiscal policy, at the same time, 
has a different impacts in different regions. Why is that the case? Well, there, are, there is a variety of explanations why that's the case. One possible explanation, for example, if we look at the um, structural funds that are redistributed by, the, uh, by Brussels to various regions, the majority of these funds do not get utilized in a proper, in a proper way. They don't boost economic growth. Why? Because the governance within that particular region is, uh, is lacking. Therefore, the success of redistribution policy is bounded to some kind of governance within the region. Okay? So, what I argue um, is that a fiscal solution is a necessary but not a sufficient condition so, uh, for solving the European problems. We need something else. Okay? And on this, I'm a bit biased, if you want, because my background is in financial economics. And um, so Europe, I think, has two challenges at the moment. And the first one is what we need to harmonize our economies. We need to make our economies more working together rather than creating one single entity, like, for example, Italy was created 150 years ago, but then the regions uh, are widening further apart, the more they develop. Because the, the policies are having different impacts on different regions. So we need to create well, I, the Societas Europea, and then we need to minimize some kind of regional variation. Okay, so that's uh, what we need to do, in essence, I think, is to work more on the financial side. So financial markets are not perfect, but financial markets can help to redistribute uh, income, to redistribute growth. Financial markets can help us to uh, share the risk. <coughs> and the second point, what we need is a banking system, okay? Um, which is a bit more than just uh, the banks create uh, all the mess in 2007, 2008, why should we trust them? I'm going to explain in, in a second uh, what I mean by, uh, by that. Okay, so first of all, financial risk sharing. There is an extensive literature out there on financial risk sharing, and if you look, for example, what happens in the US, which is similar to what the European Union would like to be, uh, we see that if there is an asymmetric shock, so um, only one state is hit by a particular shock, 50% of the shock is absorbed by the financial market. Against a similar shock in the euro area, and only about 10-13% is redistributed by the financial market. Why is that the case? Well, the, the case is because uh, the financial markets in Europe are not integrated. They are not integrated. The only financial market that's integrated in Europe is the money market. And the reason why it's integrated is because it's basically controlled by the European Central Bank. Because that's how they do their, implement their policies, essentially. And the wholesale bond markets. But if we look at the equity market, for example, the equity market is completely dominated by what we call home buyers. So we tend to buy shares from our own uh, country, but we don't buy shares from other, from other regions. Um, so 
how do we promote this uh, uh, financial risk sharing? Well, the way to promote this is to have uh, more harmonization of uh, uh, the legal system. Okay? If we have a more harmonization of the legal system, it means that the insolvency laws are going to be similar. It means that the corporate governance is going to be similar across countries. It means that it will be much easier to do business across countries and across regions. Okay? And, of course, uh, the tax system. But the, this sounds quite far from, from finance, but when you look at finance, finance is nothing more than a bunch of contracts that we are writing. Okay, somebody is buying, somebody is selling, but at the end of the day, finance is just uh, uh, contracts. And uh, what we have, we have this legal harmonization helps, for example, to have similar uh, rules for the housing market. In certain countries, we have uh, um, loan-to-value ratio imposed. In certain other countries, we have loan-to-value ratio that can go up to 100%. Or 120 percent. There is no, there is no specific rule. So that's it. And of course, uh, the tax system. And and we come to the the second point, which is the one where I want to spend more time, and is the banking union. So when I talk about the banking union, I want to talk about regional, national, and international banks, because uh, what the European Union had in mind in the beginning was uh, we need a, a pan-European financial markets and a pan dominated by pan-European banks so that those banks are able to redistribute funds from one region to another region, from one nation to another nation. And uh, this will be somehow smoothing the differences across regions. However, if we look at the UK example, for example, and that's something that maybe Europe should not learn from the UK, uh, is that uh, when we have these super national banks, there are some risks, and these risks can be quite, uh, quite high and quite dangerous. So a pan-European uh, system of banks, so only having, like the UK system has uh, five, six uh, big banks that dominate the whole uh, financial markets is, is quite dangerous and lacks diversity. Why is it dangerous? Well, I, I find that there are three, um, three important points. The first one is that small countries are a disadvantage. Small countries are a disadvantage because we have, and this is true particularly for East European countries, although this is trying to be addressed recently by the European Communion, we have the, the majority of the banks in that particular country as foreign, foreign owned. So there is a problem there, that there is no, um, the headquarters are not particularly in that, um, in that country. The second one, I think, is a bit more, um, more important, much more important, and when we have these pan-European banks, we have an increased volatility of credit. Why do we have that? Simply because when we have a boom, credit flows very easily to the remoter areas, and credit flows to the less disadvantaged areas. Why? Because they give higher returns, essentially. And that's what we witnessed. However, 
when we have a, a flight to safety, so we have a liquidity preference, we have a lot of uncertainty, credit, as fast as it's gone out, as credit is coming back in. It means that the credit is much more procyclical when we have uh, pan-European banks. And uh, this somehow exacerbates the, the, the regional problems of the periphery. So we create a widening gap between the core and the periphery when we have these pan-European banks. Even because these pan-European banks, of course, are going to be located in the capital, in the core, if you want. Right? And um, I have an example, for example, uh, from Italy and even Spain, but Italy went through a liberalization problem, um, program during the 90s. And what happened during that liberalization problem is that uh, regional banks and, uh, were allowed to expand beyond their, uh, their border, the, the regional borders. And then there was a push towards more uh, mergers and acquisition. What happens is that in the south, as roughly one-third of the population, we only have eight headquarters now of commercial banks compared to 50 that we used to have before. And in the north, instead, the, the change in the number of headquarters is not um, is negligible. So there have been some mergers and acquisition, but nothing <laughs> dramatic. And this brings me to the, to the third point, which is, what, well, small, there's a nice issue. Uh, regional banks are vital for local, econo uh, for local economic development. And by these small regional banks, I'm talking about banks that are constrained within the regional boundaries. I'm talking about saving banks, cooperative banks. I'm talking about um, any type of regional financial institutions. Okay, and what we seen is that. Uh, okay, what we seen is that what we have is that these are very much linked to development of the SMEs, small and medium enterprises. Uh, small banks tend to lend a lot to small and medium enterprises. Uh, when we had these mergers and acquisitions in, in in Italy, for example, I'm not sure of Spain, but Italy for sure. Um, what we witnessed is uh, some kind of uh, minor credit crunch in the sense that the credit stopped flowing to the SMEs and the credit stopped flowing to new businesses, to new uh, startups. And the other things is that usually it's believed that small bank, saving banks and cooperative banks are less, uh, less efficient compared to bank banks that are quite big. The reality is that there is no study that has been able to prove that. All studies have shown that the efficiency, however you measure it, return on equity, return on capital, margin, uh, profit margin, all the different studies have shown that there is no difference between the big banks and the regional, the regional banks. The problems arise, for example in Spain, um, when there has been the liberalization. That that's was the, the big problem. But in Germany, for example, uh, the banks that operate still like 50 or 80 years ago, um, they, run, they had no problems in the, in the last financial crisis. So that was the, 
Um, so that's the, and the, the volatility, for example, was not a, a, the volatility of uh, uh, these indicators is rather stable compared to. Um, so let me really conclude. Last thirty seconds. So what we need, <laughs> what we need is more. I, I summarize with two words. So I take only thirty seconds. First is uh, financial financial sharing. That's what we need. And the other one is banking diversity. We need banking diversity because uh, different banks are serving different tiers of the society. So big banks are, are don't get me wrong, big, uh, big banks are good in the sense that uh, they're good for big businesses. But for more small and medium enterprises, what we need, we need small banks. That's a uh, Thank you, and thanks. thanks for keeping me quiet. Okay, I will ask Andres not to respond much to the point about small banks in Spain. No, 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 I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> oh. uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to the Institute, the in particular. It's a pleasure to be here. It's actually across uh, the street to come here, so it's an easy uh, ride. And what I'm going to be talking today is I'm going to be focusing much more on the regional dimension and the impact that and why did the evolution of regions may have had such an impact on the instability and lack of resilience of some parts of Europe. When we take a look at the four presidents' report, it's amazing that the some of the language that's being used. For example, when they look at shock, uh, shock absorption and which function, uh, function that would have to be implemented, there's a lot of discussion about, well, we need some convergence between economic structures, we need stronger economic convergence, more structural policies, and we need to avoid the risk of moral hazard. So the question is, do we need something new or do we have it? In fact, we have had it for quite a long time. That has been for uh, at least 25 years now, since the reform on structural funds, a regional development policy later that became a cohesion policy that has been doing precisely that. And what has it been doing in order to get that convergence? Well, don't get scared about uh, uh, the equation. It's uh, very simple. They have followed the advice of us, so we're culprits, academics. We're saying in order to get convergence, get greater growth, you need a sort of intervention which is based, this is a simple uh, growth equation, which is based on capital, physical capital, that's it, put money into infrastructure. And the knee-jerk reaction every time we have a crisis is, let's pump money into infrastructure. Transport infrastructure more than anything else. And A, which is your technology, invest in innovation. And L, which is your labor, in the quality of your human capital. There's only one problem, that there's always an epsilon, which is the error term, the residual factor, that unfortunately, 20 years ago was almost inexistent, 25, now it's growing and growing. So we know, for us, it's very frustrating. We know less about growth than we did, or we thought we knew 20 years ago. And we are struggling with that. So the European Union has put in place this policy that has been had problems at the beginning, teaching problems, but has been improving following this advice and has invested massively in the three dimensions. More than anything else, we have invested in Europe in physical capital, infrastructure, 
and transportation. About one in two of euros get out of the money going into cohesion policy has gone into infrastructure. It's probably more because a lot of other things are hidden infrastructure. When you're doing education or you're doing business, you're doing infrastructure for education very often. You're doing infrastructure for, uh, let's say, innovation or research and development. But if we just look at one individual factor, let's take the proxy, which has been added, um, motorways as a proxy. If you take a look at the size of these figures here, uh, the size uh, represents the actual investment in infrastructure in those regions in Europe. And you can see that motorways have been very popular, especially in Spain, in Portugal, some parts of Germany, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, in Hungary, and to a lesser extent in, uh, well, central France, to a lesser extent in places like Romania or, for example, Poland, although they have had less time to benefit from that. And there's been so much investment with Gusto that there's been enormous convergence in this, to the extent that the roles have been reversed. You'll be perhaps a tad surprised to know that if you take a look at the endowment of motorways in Europe right now, the country with the best endowment in motorways in not just Europe, the world, per head, is Portugal. <laughs> Followed by Spain, relatively closely, and then the third one is Sweden, but the ratio is two and a half times less than Portugal. At a certain point, you have, in Portugal, three parallel motorways running between <laughs> uh, parts of Lisbon and uh, Porto. It, uh, if we take a look at, for example, a motorways uh, per... Um, uh, GDP per, sorry, that was per GDP per head, but per inhabitant, that should be somewhere around here. Um, let me see, which one is that? Yeah, it's over here. Then it's not Portugal, it's Spain, followed by Luxembourg, but then Portugal comes third. And of course, when you invest so much into one thing, you not only reverse the convergence, you probably, because there are other problems, do not do the wisest investment. This is, for example, the bridge, the Vasco da Gama Bridge, over the Tagus River, in Portugal, in Lisbon, a city that was massively congested, with only one bridge crossing the, uh, the Tagus, where there was a need to build another bridge, and the first proposal was to do it from Lisbon, where the majority of the population lies to the south, where it's the second large area, mainly to Vareiro, here, but they decided to go for the biggest bridge. Uh, from the north, where the expo was going to be, to another place at the other side, instead of doing it perhaps over here or here, where it would have been more needed and less costly. But let's not just criticize Portugal, they are I'm originally from Spain, they are my neighbors. Let's put examples from my country. Um, this is the expo uh, high speed railway station, which sees, has not seen, I think, apart from once, uh, any high speed train arriving there. I put this example in my classes. I went to see it once. I took the train. There was only one local train per hour. I was the only passenger. It was, it was around midday, so perhaps that was the reason. But I had to actually lift the shutters because the station was half closed. There was no one to, to be seen. And so it's one of the examples of white elephants that have been developed. There are many others. You will think this is a joke. But this is the... Uh, Suppression of one high-speed rail line between Toledo, 
about 90,000 inhabitants, to Albacete, 135, 40,000, which had the grand number of daily passengers to trains per day of nine. And there were still complaints. The airport of uh, Castellón, one of the, a number of airports in, in Spain, which has never seen a single plane. And then, of course, Madrid, which is a very well-endowed city in terms of motorways, etc., but where every single motorway has been coming out of the city, has been doubled by a tall motorway, and the tall motorways are all completely uh, on track. So, massive convergence to the time that there has been a reversal of convergence, and excess in terms of investment, and the results are very questionable in countries that are now maybe suffering the consequences from that. If I can move the slide, which has, been, has become stuck. Maybe it likes the slide. <laughs> yeah, here it goes, and let me see. Yeah, if I go. In human capital, there's also been some convergence. Might not have been inequality. The PISA report is there to highlight some of the problems. But if you take a look, at this is the core of Europe. This is the adults with higher levels of education. It's not that the core is better now than the rest. Many parts of the periphery, Scandinavia, but also Estonia, uh, the whole of the UK and Ireland, northern Spain, parts of Bulgaria, at least in terms of stock, are relatively well represented, better than parts of northern Italy, the Czech Republic, or Austria in that respect, or for that sake, just the northern part of Paris, Italy. So even there, the effect of policies have gone in the right direction. But then again, has that led to greater convergence? And when we look at the third pillar, which is innovation, here we can still see a clear core periphery dimension. Uh, brown is uh, worse, so there's still a clear eastern periphery, to less extent a southern periphery, and the core is still investment much more on research and development, and also in terms of innovation performance, the innovation leaders are located both in Scandinavia, Germany, but also around the arts, where the economic core of the European Union is uh, located. So at least in two of the three basic elements, what we have seen is that the European Union has invested, not just the European Union, national governments. In some cases, there has been convergence. In other cases, the situation has been completely uh, reversed. So if we take a look at what has happened, uh, maybe, and it's probably true, this policy has led to important convergence in terms of GDP per head, which was its objective. And it's relatively resilient, because if you take a look at, this is 2000 as a starting point, has been indexed, and even with the crisis, there's no longer convergence, but it hasn't led to significant divergence, as has happened in terms of unemployment rates and levels of employment. So in that respect, what we see is that, yes, the periphery has grown faster than the core, that was the objective of this convergence policy. That's what was expected. But it's probably less so, less convergence, than what would have been expected given what the theory would have predicted and the level of investment that we have had. And the question is, why? Possibly because we have overlooked a very important factor that I think it's at the base of why the crisis in the periphery of Europe, and especially Southern Europe, has become so important and so uh, resilient, and why countries like Spain, Portugal, Italy, or Greece are struggling so much in order to come out of the crisis. This is 
we're starting to measure quality of government. This is uh, indicators from the uh, Gothenburg uh, Institute of Quality of Government. Yes, uh, I think I've managed to do it. Uh, in which you'll see that here, in terms of the aggregate index of quality of government, countries like Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, but also South and Italy, are well below the European average, where the best quality of government is found in Scandinavia, but also in parts of Austria and North Italy. The gap within Italy is absolutely phenomenal. Some of the areas have got, some national areas, some of the best governments in Europe, whereas in the South, in places like Campania, is at the worst levels that we find within the European Union. So the question is, what happens if we put this, and how does the quality of government affect the returns of policies and its impact on growth? And we put this all together. Don't get confused by the data. I'm not going to, it's just to highlight that there's a lot of analysis behind this. But we're trying to, if we look at the infrastructure, which is where the majority of the money has gone, neither a stock nor the increase of infrastructure has had any sort of impact, real impact, on economic performance. Probably because we have, in some cases, in some parts of Europe, overinvested, and perhaps invested in what can be sumptuous forms of infrastructure with no real connection to actual need. Human capital and innovation, when put together, <coughs> has had a much bigger impact. So regions that have had a better human capital and that have seen a human capital and their energy capacity increase, they have performed much better than otherwise. But they're important barriers to entry. In order to grow, you have to have a good starting point. And it might take some of the peripheral still to catch up, especially in innovation, in order to achieve that. But the thing that we have overlooked, the area that we have overlooked, has been that of institutions. And here the, the results are mixed. Institutions matter. They matter enormously. And it's something we have not considered, although the policy is increasingly moving in that direction. The reform uh, of the policy that was initiated in part by the Nita here is much more focusing on this dimension. And there are mixed signs. First, they matter enormously. There is very good news that a bad level of starting point in terms of institutions is not a barrier for economic development, but you need to improve your institutional quality. And precisely where do you need to improve it? If you manage to reduce corruption, if you manage to improve your implementation of the rule of law, and if you manage to increase your government accountability, which are basic elements, the potential for not just generating greater growth, but also making sure that other decisions about other types of policies uh, have greater impact is going to be greatly enhanced. So what can we conclude from this? That in order to get clear foundations of a solid, long-lasting, resilient monetary union that will avoid shocks, we need to look at developing efficient institutions everywhere in Europe. More than everything, we need this accountable government, reduction of corruption, and better institutions would help avoid the sort of imbalances that might lead to future shocks. I would just like to end that I think that that have been steps in the right direction. It's not going to be easy, because it's much easier to improve and uh, let's say infrastructure endowment to build a motorway, to build an airport, and to actually make sure that you make sure that, that your government institutions actually function and function effectively. Thank you.
But if we don't get in this direction and the policy, the reform of the policy is going in this direction, I don't think we're going to achieve much. We need to put more emphasis on this. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Andres. Uh, I'm sure we're going to return to some of, uh, of the points later. But we'll have our final speaker now, uh, yeah. Professor Hauptner. I'm, 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 I'm not done to use the PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what I can say after what I have said. <laughs> so I'm just uh, here. And I would like to I will try, I will make an effort to, to link, in fact, what, what we start with, which is the macroeconomic uh, perspective with, uh, uh, with the regional or cohesion. Uh, policy uh, perspective, and I'd like to start by, by saying that if you look at, um, at at what in fact the crisis allowed us to see in Europe, it's clearly that it showed how differentiated uh, Europe is on all accounts practically, and, and uh, we could very clearly see uh, because of the crisis, or thanks to the crisis, all the internal and external uh, asymmetries, we could clearly uh, see very different both level and also dynamics of the competitiveness across Europe, especially between the south and north, but also between the west and, and, and east, when you think of, of dynamics of the, uh, the competitiveness, we could clearly see dramatic differences in adjustment capacities across uh, Europe at all levels of European, uh, of governance at national, but also local and, and uh, regional. We could also see in many sectors and in many areas in terms of territories as, as well, a very deep fragmentation of the economies, also of the, of the policies. Uh, I would say that the convergence machinery, which I understand, which, which is for me more than just what the co cohesion policy is generating, but convergence machinery of the European integration, meaning also intra-trade, meaning also the cross-border activity, including in the financial sector, I think this convergence machinery has slowed down around the beginning of the, of the beginning of the of the current millennium, if I can say it uh, this uh, way. And also, if you look at the sub-national level and the regional level, but also at city level, I mean the big cities or smaller uh, cities, you can uh, clearly uh, see how different adjustment capacities uh, we have in, in uh, Europe depending on many, many factors. And we, we have already studies showing how the crisis revealed the differences in, um, in uh, whatever, GDP, employment, all those traditional uh, indicators per capita across regional and local uh, communities of the European uh, Union. Uh, uh, basically, if you also look into how the quality of life changed in the course of the crisis and the reaction to the crisis, uh, we can also see uh, the whole diversity or divergence in, in, uh, in Europe. And, and I think it's both the crisis revealed those things, but also our reaction to the crisis, in my view, added to, this, uh, to these differences across European Union or on all uh, accounts. And then we, we know that there was a broad, broad range of, of reforms in reaction to the uh, to this crisis, and it's, it's of course the financial sector, it's of course the, the entire economic uh, governance, but it's also the coordination of, um, uh, of, the, um, of all European policies, not only within the economic government, but in general this approach of the need to, to better coordinate also European policies, national, the understanding of the holistic approach, I think, of the development uh, challenges. This, I think, also has become more often uh, has been more often put on the table in European uh, debates 
But there is also the whole consolid budgetary consolidation effort, which is not only in the south of Europe, which has become also a, a, a religion, I would say, across a European uh, Union. And what is, I think, important is a very delayed understanding that we have to switch to the pro-growth policies. I mean, we already forgot that the first years of austerity, in fact, there was a lot of uh, researchers were, were talking about the need of, of finally putting the growth agenda also on the on the table, and that came very very uh, late in one of the February Council, I think, two years um, ago. And we cannot ignore looking at what's going on at subnational and regional level. We of course have also to see that even the financial sector reforms have been of great importance for uh, for the adjustment capacities at local and, and regional level because. Uh, banks are not just an abstract, abstract institutions that uh, uh, function at, at national level. Banks are very often local, the only local provider of, of loan, and we could see in, in, in Greece that overnight they became just empty shells. And they, so, so the major provision of, of funding for the local SMEs has also disappeared in some of the countries. Uh, from, from one day uh, to another, and in general, the, the bank uh, lending has become dysfunctional in, in countries or regions or cities in, in, in needing most of uh, very, very uh, quickly. And this vicious connection <coughs> between the sovereign uh, uh, debt and the financial uh, sector is, is not, again, only the national phenomenon, it's also a phenomenon that had very practical meaning for the local and regional uh, level. You might see in many countries, in Spain certainly, in Poland uh, certainly, that the government policy, uh, fiscal policy or budgetary policy uh, with regard to the local and regional level has been uh, through dramatic uh, changes. And uh, thanks to this, I think, approach, we managed to rationalize a lot of governments, also in governance and regional and local level. But also we have killed a lot of a big portion of the capacity to invest at, at local or, or regional uh, level. The, the governance reforms which, uh, which we've been through, uh, thanks to the crisis, I would, uh, I would say, uh, was of course linked to this excessive deficit and the uh, debt uh, burden, but, but also the macroeconomic um, imbalances, and, and uh, was linked very strongly to the fact that the massive version of EMU uh, simply didn't, didn't function, failed absolutely to keep uh, in place the uh, sound public uh, financing, but also allowed for this growing divergence of competitiveness across uh, Europe, we must say very, uh, very clearly uh, today. And, and I think that um, in, the, in the reforms uh, in that we, we have uh, embarked upon uh, thanks to the crisis and all those reforms, uh, I think the economic policy coordination is underestimated in terms of, I think, of what remains still to be done to improve it as a, as a policy measure, I would say, uh, but also in terms of the importance for in, in longer term uh, for the uh, uh, long-term health of European uh, economy. Uh, this economic policy coordination is, I think, for the first time uh, very strongly linked with the mechanism that would facilitate enacting of structural reforms across um, member states and wherever they are, uh, they are needed through the European semester and, uh, machinery. But in this context, what was mentioned here, the genuine economic and monetary union, this recent still virtual 
idea of, of how to improve the uh, economic <coughs> monetary uh, union functioning in the context of the um, of the machinery, providing a machinery uh, for the uh, sort of continuous process of structural uh, reforming. I think this this uh, idea of, of um, genuine monetary and economic uh, union is a very interesting one, even though it's put on hold, as you probably uh, no, it was not discussed last December. The, the Sherpas of Mr. Van Rompuy are meeting. There are also European Parliament is also involved uh, in this. And this idea of, of uh, creating an additional fiscal instrument to support the structural reforms, this idea is somehow very, with a lot of difficulties, getting through the um, uh, through the policy-making uh, system of the European uh, Union. But, but it is certainly a very interesting, I think, um, a new approach to, to, to the uh, fiscal union um, uh, vision of the fiscal union because for the first time we have this uh, practically the, the replica of the national system at European level uh, the uh, in national parliament in fact is putting on the government the responsibility for <coughs> introducing reforms for example of labor uh, market but then it's also national parliament that is giving money for those reforms because national parliament accepts the, or adopts the, the budget and in the budget you have the funds to uh, go on with the reforms. And for the first time in, in, in the history of European integration, we have this idea uh, with some uh, nuances, of course, uh, proposed for European level if under the genuine uh, economic and monetary union. There's idea of having a, a kind of contractual arrangement between the European Commission and the member states that would be prepared to introduce um, structural reforms. And then, if needed, uh, the money would go from European budget to the national budget, not to the program or project or a concrete, uh, like in the cohesion policy, a concrete um, investment, uh, but to, the, to support the national budget to cover the cost of those reforms. And, and this is uh, something which I think for the first time has been put on, on, on European uh, uh, agenda. And of course it is also a challenge for, uh, for the cohesion policy in the sense that it must be well coordinated, well organized, <coughs> uh, so that there is nothing like double financing and that those issues are, are, are properly uh, coordinated. Um, but this, I, it doesn't look like in March there will be energy and climate on the agenda of the, of the Council, so there is little hope that this idea will, will go on, we'll see the light, um, the green light in, uh, in the tunnel um, uh, before the uh, parliamentary uh, elections, nevertheless it, it is there. Few words on the austerity in the context of the cohesion uh, policy, because I think uh, uh, there is a, a very important interdependence between this, this uh, uh, process of austerity. Uh, Europe made itself famous for, for the austerity measures, uh, uh, we, which basically uh, have the, 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 the beginning, the, the starting point in the need to consolidate the, the budgets of the uh, member uh, state. The problem is that the austerity, which uh, had, uh, I think, a huge impact on our capacity to on, on capacity to grow. In fact, the reigniting growth is, is not yet um, a viable option in, in Europe. This austerity was made on, on uh, decided on, on rather wrong uh, assumption, on assuming that private sector will immediately step in and the public uh, sector will step back with its um, public uh, investment. 
there was this assumption that the confidence of the markets will, and of the private sector will immediately be uh, back in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, there was this assumption that the uh, spreads will, because of this confidence coming back soon, spreads will, will become more um, uh, advantages for the uh, affected uh, countries, but spreads, uh, I think, were reflecting the uh, fundamentals. They were not depending on confidence or, or short-term actions. They were reflecting fundamentals of those uh, economies. In short, the multiplier was much higher than it was assumed. So, and that had huge impact on, on also on the capacity for, of the uh, national budgets, regional and local budgets, budget to co-finance the policy, uh, the investment coming from the European uh, budget, which is based on national uh, co-financing. But the good thing, I think, of this austerity um, exercise was that it ignited a search for new dynamics of uh, uh, intra-EU adjustment. I, I think it also uh, meant or pushed up pushed us strongly towards the search for new factors of economic resilience at all levels of European economy, also local and uh, regional. It also pushed us towards the, this rethinking of economic governance and pushed us towards this uh, uh, understanding of the importance of better coordination of economic uh, policies at different levels of economic uh, governance in the European um, uh, Union. And it pushed us also towards, and especially European Central Bank, towards an effort or of finding a new macroeconomic policy mix, uh, meaning this contractionally oriented fiscal uh, policy should be combined with the uh, loose monetary policy. The problem is it doesn't work. It didn't work. It doesn't it continue not to work. And the monetary policy uh, kicked off by the by the EC. Uh, B, uh, who decided to take over also the responsibility for growth in, uh, in uh, Europe. Um, uh, this, there's no success in this. We don't see the, um, uh, the positive impact on, on, uh, on, on banks' uh, propensity to start uh, lending this monetary policy. Transmission channel is, is dysfunctional, doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, work. The interest rate is close to one minute. The interest rate is close to zero and still doesn't work. That shows that macroeconomic framework, the stability, all that doesn't work. It's not sufficient is, uh, to, to reignite growth. And that's why I think we, rightly so, we, we, we uh, understood in the European Union that reaching out to uh, structural policies, and especially those policies that happen to have also financial instruments to support them, like the regional or cohesion policy, that this is something which Europe might, ma must take much more seriously, and that's why it's not only the budget which is important and the uh, new priorities and all the, the, the new elements in this policy to make it uh, clear uh, that we must avoid all those deficiencies that were just mentioned, but also for the first time we link this policy to the European semester, the entire process of policy uh, coordination, and we have established the, the links between the uh, recommendations coming from European semester through the country-specific recommendations, through the national reform uh, programs, and the operational programs of the uh, regional policy, with the conditionality based also on, on the need for the policy to adjust itself, the operational programs, in the course of the whole period, to the recommendations coming from the uh, European uh, semester. Additionally, we 
introduced also sanctions. This policy can be used to sanction uh, those member states who do not respect uh, European semester uh, recommendations. And we also created ex-ante conditionalities for this policy. So in order, for example, to invest in innovation, you have to meet a lot of pre-empted sort of criteria like having a smart specialization strategy or, or any other uh, conditions. So, so I think that through this, we, there is a hope uh, that the whole economic governance of the European Union that, does, that gives itself now also for the first time recognized as the European investment policy, the regional policy, <coughs> that we will have a framework in which uh, I think um, we, we have a chance that growth will, will come to Europe, growth based on new growth factors and also growth based on, on a better coordination of, of, uh, uh, of all the policies at all levels of European uh, it's been some bad positive note. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm, I'm very much conscious of time, and although I'm tempted to summarize the points, I will just throw, throw some questions inspired by uh, uh, the, the presentations and then immediately open it without getting the answers to the questions, immediately open it to, uh, uh, to the audience for questions. So I would just like to. to, to Perhaps highlight two, two points. One, one of the point about uh, that we heard from Professor Havner about the, the conditional investment, regional development, or national development policy. It seems to me that it may be actually favouring uh, the regions or countries exactly with the good institutions and the good institutional capacities that perhaps the presentation of by Andres was was highlighting. So that good performance will do the good structural reforms. They will do. Uh, they will produce the, the smart specialization uh, strategies and will get the money at the expense of the usual suspects who will not only have the, the empty airports but would also now be deprived of the funds to even build, you know, uh, useless or uh, underutilized uh, airports. <laughs> underutilized. Uh, so, so, so that would be one of my questions. But I, as I said, I don't expect an immediate. Answer. On the other hand, I think, the, 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 so relating more to the presentation by Alberto, there is obvious this dimension about local empowerment and local economic development, and you want this through cohesion policy, but also through uh, development of, of embedded, locally embedded institutions, including local uh, banks. But it seems to me that, you know, given that we have this... Uh, internationalization of capital, at least at the European level, if not uh, globally. So basically the response is not whether, the question is not whether you have local or non-local banks, but whether you have a local savings base. And then this takes us back to structure, to capacity, to productivity potential. Uh, in a way, and I'm more a real economy person than a finance person, but in a way it is not about the banking system or the financial organization, it is about the, the potential of the economy. Uh, so I will just pause here and uh, uh, pass it to the audience if there's more uh, questions uh, or while you collect your thoughts. Okay, there's more questions. So we... Yes. Yeah, Bernard Casey from University of Warwick and LSE. Um, that was very interesting. I was provoked by lots of people. I might say to Alberto that he ought to be a little less um, uh, uh, rose-tinted spectacles about Germany, where I can tell him horrible stories about local banks and one or two other horrible would do that behind the cricket scoring hut afterwards. 
I was taken by the same point that uh, Vasilis was as well. I mean, I was taken by the point, I think sort of really everybody made that institutions matter, but the problem is that institutional reform is not a treaty uh, competence. Um, improving coordination, unfortunately, is something where competence is, is, is lacking um, uh, rather badly. Contractual arrangements seem to be very important, and that was what uh, a number of people ultimately can indicated. Conditionality also then becomes um, important. But if we're not careful, as Vasilis said, there are some people who can do it and some people who can't do it. And how do we deal with the people who can't? Do we send in the dictators? And effectively, this is what we saw in the case of, uh, of Greece. Um, if that is the only way to do it, and there is some competence possibly to do it, what happens to the, um, demogra- the, de- the democratic deficit about which we talk very much as well. So I throw that as a comment as much as a question. Thank you. I'll take one more question and then let the panel uh, respond. Uh, the thing that um, came to mind after listening to the, all the four speakers is that uh, the question in my mind was can, can you really talk about uh, monetary and uh, economic union in the long run without there being some kind of political union movement towards that. I think uh, without that I would see it's, it would seem that to get all these mechanisms going efficiently would be a very very difficult thing given the diversity of the nation states that are in Europe. So that's my uh, thought. Thank you. So perhaps we can sort of let the panel respond uh, in no more than two minutes. It's uh, in the inverse order. So if we start by Professor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, on, on the conditionality, because I, I think I was asked in this. Con- I was asked to say something in this context. I mean, th- there are all sorts of conditionalities, but I, I would like to say that uh, uh, the ex ante conditionality, in fact, is seen as the instrument that will allow to discover lacks in uh, what is lacking, what are the missing elements in the institutional framework or in the legal framework or any other framework that is needed for a given project to discover, uh, to reveal that this uh, missing uh, element uh, exists at the very beginning of the process. We were discovering in the implementation of this policy the missing elements, sometimes in the middle of the project, then there were problems with the funding to be taken away, with the suspension, with, with the corrections. Now this is going to be discovered at the beginning of the whole process, which would then allow also the European Commission to work with the member states to meet the needed criteria within a certain period of, of time. So it is seen in such a way uh, that it does not become a barrier for the countries which are institutionally less advanced or less, uh, less developed. There is a, a whole process of supporting this. But there is a risk that a locally relevant, important, crucial project might, be, uh, might suffer from the fact that at national level, a national parliament is, for example, delaying a certain legislation or that the government does not uh, ratify a UN convention which is needed to receive money, for example, for the gender mainstreaming or whatever, human rights or the, the uh, violence in family funding from the ESF. So there is this risk that there will be the, uh, those who will be paying for, uh, for the lack of efficiency, institutional efficiency, uh, will not be those who have impact on, the, on making the institutions efficient. And this is all. This is a risk, I would say. Yes, a raft of very interesting questions. And uh, I think the first question about 
the conditionality and uh, is it a ruse to favour the core at the expense of the periphery? Uh, I think conditionality goes in the right direction. Conditionality is creating the right incentives for increasing the quality of government that's so necessary in order to make sure that uh, policies deliver. Uh, when we took, take a look at, for example, the structural policies, we see that the policies have worked and worked relatively well, but to a certain level, up to 120 euros, putting more money into peripheral regions makes a difference between 100 and, beyond 120 euros. The impact is virtually none unless you improve quality of government. So it's much cheaper, much easier, much more rational, much better to try to create the conditionalities and incentives to do that. Of course, the question is, do we have then a democratic deficit if you don't comply? Um, it depends on what sort of polity you're thinking about. Are you thinking it about at the local level or national level? Perhaps, yes. But these countries are members of the European Union. They vote for a European Parliament. They participate in their decisions through the Council. So they are responsible for what is being decided. It's not that uh, you can have a situation, like Benito was saying, that the national parliament can then block legislation and prevent that. If that happens, then probably we have also a democratic deficit, but at the national level, in which the dictators are not necessarily European, which I don't like the word, they might be national, even though if they are elected. So in that respect, I think it does create the right incentives. Um, on the issue of... Um, the structural uh, and local banks, which uh, has been highlighted, ah, I do agree with uh, your principle that local banks, because they are more embedded in territory, they might have much greater interest in, in, in lending. But of course, it does go again to the issue of governance and quality of government. And I come from Spain, where we, we have seen what local banks have done. And you can say, well, the problems came after... Uh, they were forced to merge, but they were forced to merge because first they created the problems, it was all, they were all mediated by uh, politics, and with uh, the overseer, in this case the Bank of Spain, looking to the other side. Uh, so I would agree, there's a need to make credit flow. I think that Vasilis has mentioned that there, is a, there are different ways of doing this, but if we're going to do it through local banks, we need to have proficient, well-organized, well-structured local banks that play and abide by the same rules wherever you are in the European Union. Otherwise, we're going to have the same shortcomings and the problems that we have seen in Spain might be reproduced across a host of European <coughs> countries. And, well, let me start from this point. I entirely agree. It's all a matter of, of governance. Even in Italy, it's like Spain. All the banks that run into trouble was the the banks that, even if they were local banks, were bad banks. I'm not saying that all local banks are good banks. I'm just saying that we need local banks, good local banks, as we need national banks, as international banks. Um, it's all a matter of, for example, um, in Italy there was a, a, the governance deficit because... Uh, the politicians who are running some of, of the banks and therefore decisions were not taken to maximize the profit of the bank or to maximize some kind of uh, objective of the bank but they were uh, taken to maximize other uh, personal interests. Let's say mm -hmm. that. So that's, uh, that's the reason where, where I, um, that's my point. And my point is that we need, if we want growth, we need these local banks. 
We need these local banks because that's the only way to credit flow to SMEs. And it's only a question of confidence. I mean, usually you know people at local level. You know the guy, the entrepreneur that is... Exactly, because the local banks are able to process uh, soft soft information, mm -hmm. yes. while big banks are hard information. So they only look at um, assets and liabilities. Mm -hmm. They don't look at, they don't trust the individual. So that's a, that's a point. And if the policy comes from the headquarter and the headquarter is based in Milan or in Frankfurt or in Brussels, whatever it is, the uh, credit officer receives information from Frankfurt not to flow credit to, I don't know, to Spain, but to, flow, to relocate credit somewhere else, even if the, uh, the, the, the regional credit officer can see some potential for growth in that particular in that particular region. So that's a that's a key point uh, there. So that's a, we need good local banks. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, but uh, no, it was just uh, to do. Yeah. So can I pass the phone? Okay, um, I'm reminded of many uh, weekend radio programs on Radio Four um, where they they've been pushing this line. It, in terms of banks is it good banks that we need or good big banks or good small banks it's good banks but can't big banks also go back to having a relationship that they manage between themselves and the people they're lending to that they're dealing with the businesses that they're helping with their finances I don't necessarily think it has to be very small banks provided there is local representation of the banks that talk to the businesses, which seems to be the thing that when banks got bigger, kind of went by the wayside. And I think maybe the, the crisis has been one hell of a wake-up and some of the banks, which are getting lots of coverage on Radio 4 on weekend afternoons, <laughs> seem to now be pushing in the right direction. Um, on the investment, I've learned a lot more about uh, how many motorways there are going between Porto and Lisbon uh, since I last went to Lisbon, I think. But, I mean, in some sense, I think your, your charts weren't telling us how the investment was financed necessarily, I think. And I just have lots of questions about can you pin down that infrastructure effect somewhat more if you look at how it was financed and if you interact governance with the infrastructure investment so that governance has to be of a certain level before you get the effect that you want and if it's poor governance then you're wasting a load of money essentially but uh, for some of us that have lived through uh, parts of the UK where infrastructure investment has been lousy at times I kind of hate the idea that it's always going to be a bad thing and just want to get really into that and get something more out of that and I have a feeling that you probably can do as well and you probably I have I can done. tell you about that this yeah. time I so thought so. you probably had done it 10 minutes is not a long time but, but it raises lots of questions in my mind I mean we have similar sorts of debates in Scotland at times about if the money is coming from Westminster for X then you don't have to worry about how to get the money to do it you just do it because the money's there so being responsible for raising the funds is different but you can still have structural funds that do things it's just once you get to the point of automatically being able to get it you end up with six motorways running parallel between Porto and Lisbon 
I want to take a second round of uh, questions just for the sake of, uh, of doing that. So, just quickly. Angelo Martelli, PhD student at European Institute. I have two very brief questions, actually building on uh, Professor Darby's points, and one is directly to uh, Dr. Montagnoli. Well, uh, I agree with Dr. Darby uh, that local banks. I mean, uh, it can also be, like, if you think of the case of Italy, you have Poste Italiana, which has, like, the largest number of branches and is acting also as a, as a bank, which is not necessarily bad. And you came up with the example of uh, Germany. Actually, Germany is probably the worst model of banking, where the Sparkassen uh, now managed to get out of banking supervision and uh, Landesbanken had to be saved, rescued by the, uh, the German government 67 billion uh, back a few years ago. And uh, on the, also uh, to um, Professor Rodriguez Pose, well, uh, uh, of course, the cohesion policy in our program from uh, starting from 2014 uh, goes up to 2020 is reoriented towards growth that is in uh, innovation, that is in uh, an improving the public administration. But uh, I mean, if you think of the cases of Italy and Spain, in the south of Italy is used extremely inefficiently the funds. Instead, if you think of Spain, it has improved from one of the poorest countries in, in Europe to being a well-developed country, I mean, especially the southern part. So I, I wouldn't necessarily um, get um, put the infrastructure as totally bad, uh, as a bad point. Yeah. All, right. It, all right, so we'll use this as a... Because this is a second thought. So. No, I think uh, okay. now it's also right to go home. Sorry. Right. Okay, so we, I'll give uh, a minute or two for any final comments by, yeah. uh, by the panel. Yeah, don't get me wrong. It's my, my speech was not against the cohesion policy. The cohesion policy has worked and it has improved. It has worked relatively well. The only problem is perhaps we have not managed to make the most out of it. And I'll tell you, linking to Julia's comment uh, about why that, that is. Um, Spain is a country that needed infrastructure like the UK, like Poland does, like Romania does right now. The only problem is that you need infrastructure up to a certain point and you needed to have that sort of investment integrated in a clear and cohesive strategy over long-run growth. So improving human capital, improving capacity to innovate, etc. Uh, but if you start too much, infrastructure is much more attractive because it's visible, it's tangible, you can open, cut the ribbon right before the elections. And at a certain point, it becomes like a drug, especially if you are in conditions of weak governance. When Spain entered the European Union, when in 1986, when the reform of structural funds took place, what you have is a country that had a well-developed construction sector with some construction companies that were commensurate with the size of the country. By 2009, Spain had five of the 15 top construction companies in the world why? Because they thrived on funding that was not just European funding, it was also national funding additionality, and it allowed. Whereas here in the UK, you decide on Crossrail, and it takes 60 years to decide whether you want to do it. <laughs> At the same time, Madrid has built three parallel tunnels under the city, okay. uh, north to south. <laughs> and that becomes a massive construction lobby because it self-supports one another. The construction companies are big, they provide employment, so politicians are happy, they 
give money to the construction companies, which in turn, it turns out, seem to be given money to under the carpet to the political parties. So you go from essential investment in infrastructure to perhaps peripheral investment in infrastructure to the end completely sumptuous investment in infrastructure in which you go for projects that at the beginning are going to have enormous returns to projects that have no returns whatsoever based on no analysis just to favour lobbies, local decision makers and a civil society that has been fascinated by the idea that we need, we have the best infrastructure in the world. Thanks. I, I think we can uh, draw a conclusion. I will use the point that Alberto made that uh, perhaps if you, sort of drawing on what was presented and discussed today, uh, a fiscal transfer, so a fiscal union may be uh, necessary but it's not sufficient if you know that there's problems of governance, uh, quality of uh, <coughs> institutions, and so forth, and also the correct uh, actions to stand in the local economies. Thank you all for uh, participating in this event, and of course our speakers for giving the presentation and the discussion. Thank you.